Welcome to Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, product design studio in New York City. My name is Paul Ford. I'm a co-founder. Rich Ziotti, also a co-founder. And today we have some exciting news. Well, exciting to us. <laughs> Probably modestly interesting to others. Which is that we, we moved our office. We did. We were at 902 Broadway. We were a subtenant. Yeah. And that was between 20th and 21st Street. We moved about a block over to the left and a couple blocks south to 101 Fifth Avenue. Correct. To be honest, we weren't planning to move, but the, um, the leaseholder went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is just one of those things. I mean, it happens. So we had to, we had to find a place for about 40 people to, to live happily. Yeah. And so we did. We found a nice space. And a place to host a lot of great events. That's, That's right. another part of our thinking. It's a big thing for us. We always need a space where you can get 60, 70 people in. 100 people. Everybody yeah, can sure. have a, a drink or a glass of water and, and, and just kind of chat. And yep. so 101 Fifth Avenue sounds like something, right? It rolls off the tongue. You do. You're like, oh, where are you? 101 Fifth Avenue. And the address is a, it's a wonderful spot. It's just northwest yeah. of uh, Union Square. So it just... I went and I was like, you know, I bet this building has a history, mm-hmm. or at least this address. It turns out it really does. And I thought that today on the podcast, we could talk about the things that have happened at 101 Fifth Avenue. Oh, boy. Because I think they're illustrative in interesting ways. Okay. I mean, to me, I'm going to think about this in the context of New York history. That's right. Which so, I love. So right now we're in a 11-story building. Yes. Maybe 12 when you count the first floor. I'm not quite sure. But yep. like... That is, uh, it's not super wide. It's about 30, no. 40 feet wide, yeah. about 100 feet deep. It's got nice light. And it turns out that that space that it was in, it was not, of course, always this building. This building had to come from somewhere. So the first record for 101 Fifth Avenue I could find, it was a very fancy neighborhood before it became office buildings. Mm. And so the first thing- Fancy I, residential neighborhood? Yeah, like the Astors, people like that were, were milling around. Okay. Okay, so this is- big houses up until around the turn of the last century, up until 1900 or so. Okay. You'd find the mansions, essentially, floating around. So the first record I could find was from January 27th, 1866. And all I did to find these was search through the New York okay. Times. Okay. Do you know when the building was built? Our building was built in 1908. I'm going to give you a little taste of what it was. Oh, okay. Before. So you're going pre the spot, literally the lot number. Yeah. Yeah, you're 101 Fifth okay. Avenue. Go ahead. Uh, the cross street is around 17th, 17th and 18th. Street. 17th. You're right. 17th and 18th. Just north of 17th. Yes. We're still, we've been there two days. Let me read a little bit of news. Um, what year are we? We're 1866. Mr. Edward Matthews residence, number 101 Fifth Avenue, spelled Fifth Dash Avenue, was entered by a thief through an open door during Thursday night and $7,000 worth of diamonds and $100 in cash was carried off and no arrests were made. That's like a million. That's, that's a lot of money. It's, Did you convert that uh, through inflation? I could. I could. Hold on a sec and I'll, I'll do it right here. I have, I have the internet. Oh my God, Rich, get ready. Uh oh. 
$100,550. Oh, I thought it would be more than that. Oh, I'm really sorry. It's still a lot. Sorry to disappoint you about the enormous diamond haul that was yeah. pulled out of, out okay. of 101 Fifth Ave. So then you get a little more of that. And what you realize as you're looking through history is that you, this like 1880, so 14 years later, mm-hmm. Mrs. Edwin Matthews and her daughter of number 101 Fifth Avenue went to the opera at the Academy of Music on the evening of November 22nd. Colonel Delancey Kane attended the same entertainment at the close of the opera. A dispute between Colonel Kane, Mrs. Matthews' coachman, and two police officers resulted in the arrest of the coachman. So, I mean, big doings. What does that even mean? It just means that, like, they went to the opera and their carriage driver got in a little trouble. There was like, got into an argument or something? And then, you know, a cop. That gets in the newspaper? That's, that's the New York Times. That's the New York Times. That's the New York See, Times. See, that's fascinating to me that that's news. That was news back then because this was society, man. These yeah. were celebrities. Yeah, I guess. Like, this was the, this was, so the organizing principle of New York City is that kind of wealth. Right? Sure. And it almost feels futile as you're reading this. It's like like everybody else was a serf, you know, kind yeah. of living down there. And, yeah. You know, the Irish were right. like loitering and occasionally you'd go get some of them and, and use yeah. them to clean your scullery. But like yeah. this was the city. Yeah, like the, the contrast is, you know, uh, Scorsese's Gangs of New York. That's right. That's right. Which was just, he drew such a filthy picture That's of right. downtown just, Manhattan. Just shanty town, yeah, really. Yeah, right, 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 right. So here's another one. This is the 1884, so four years after that, Mr. and Mrs. Matthews' pink dinner. Mr. and Mrs. Edward Matthews of number 101 Fifth Avenue gave a dinner party last evening in honor of Mrs. Cuthbert Slocum and Mrs. Slocum of New Orleans. It was a pink dinner and so far carried out the details of a color dinner, in quotes. It exceeded in elaborateness anything of the kind previously attempted this season. The table was decorated with an immense basket of La France roses and maidenhair ferns and the corsage bouquets were the same flowers tied with wide pink satin ribbon and placed at each lady's place and it goes on there's a lot of pink and then it lists the people who went wait a second what in <laughs> yeah. the hell is that I know, I know. this is a private dinner in someone's house huh is this you know but they they announced the dinner. and a new york times reporter it's no worse than the style section you read this paper okay Okay, so okay. it's like it's like you know when they go and you know Calvin Klein's car collection or whatever, or Ralph okay. Lauren's car, you know. Okay, so the Matthews are having a dinner. The New York Times sends a reporter down. There's a fire. Mrs. Belmont was in, in, in 1891, and now we're starting to get we're getting towards the end of that particular Gilded Age. Okay. Okay. The fire comes. A uh, Mrs. Belmont had to escape through a window. A servant girl gallantly rescued by firemen. Heavy loss on furniture. However, what I'd point out is that news are up about 101 Fifth Avenue was big news. Like, these are articles about the people who mm-hmm. lived in that house. In 1894, we find out that the J.S. Conover Company, which sells grates and mantles, which had offices at 101 Fifth Avenue, has become insolvent. So again, we're still in mansion, but somehow the Conover Company's there. I can't quite figure mm. that one out. So look, let's fast forward a little bit. What happens now is that 1901, 101 Fifth Avenue gets sold. Okay. So big event. Yeah, this is actually like there's a headline in the real estate field is the headline of the article and then there's a subhead underneath and it's just number 101 Fifth Avenue sold. Mm-hmm. So it was a big deal that this particular parcel uh-huh. was going. This wasn't just like some random block. Got it. And then there's a lot after this throughout like for the next 30 40 years, every couple years there's some weird real estate news about the parcel. Okay. So by around 1907 Hell and Stern, Heil and Stern, have sold for Frederick W. Marks, 101 Fifth Avenue, a four-story building. So we're, we're 11 or 12 now. Mm-hmm. Between 17th and 18th Street, the buyer is Abraham Goldsmith, who purchased yesterday through the same broker, 95th Avenue, and now controls a large plot. 
Okay. So I won't go through all of these. There are dozens of them. Just transactions happening around the property. It's been a big deal. Yeah. It's yeah. been a big deal to buy and sell one. What year are we now? That 19, was 1907. That's okay. four stories. All right. And then around the next, here's where it gets real. The purchasers are going to erect a 12-story loft and office building on the site with the entire operation involving over $700,000. And this is where? What that, year are we? That is 1908. Okay. And so the building goes up around then. By 1910, you've, you've got, got this building. So this is, I mean, context here is, is worthwhile, right? It's, this is pretty much enormous wealth is pouring into the city, right? It's the Industrial Revolution and all the, the wealth that amassed well, we're on from a, that. We're on the long end. Of, so the Industrial Revolution and like, you know, things like the fur trade and import-export, yeah. those big families are, are, they're not fading, they're still around, but the point where New York City was controlled by a, a certain number of like good Protestant fortunes yeah. is over. Yeah. Look, the name Abraham Goldsmith is a good giveaway there. Like there's a lot of Jewish money, like different cultures are starting, starting to, to come up. in. Yep. And you've seen this in Bay Ridge, like there's just waves of different immigrants becoming economically empowered and then buying into New York yep. City. So $700,000, you know what that translates to? Millions. $17,349,000. That's a lot of money. It's actually quite a bit of money. Like they were putting some of this. Could still be a, not what it would be today, but it's still no, a lot it of money. It would cost $4 billion to buy that building. First of all, you can't buy a building. People may not understand that. Like unless you have an, basically an infinite amount of money, yep. there's only a, uh, dozens of families and family businesses that control most of the commercial real estate in New York City. I think that's true. Yeah, I actually met our owner, our yeah. existing landlord. Wonderful human being, by the way. Oh, good. I'm glad you guys just hedging there, just good, in case. Good give and take. <laughs> so, so there you go. They build this thing up. Actually, what happens then is that the store on the bottom floor and the basement and the ninth floor at 101 Fifth Avenue gets leased to Cohen and Brothers and Companies, importers of lace curtains, for a term of years at an aggregate rental of about $80,000. Okay. That's in uh, 1908. So here what you're seeing, right, it's where the wealthy live. They put up this building, garments. This is the ladies' mile is actually what we're, we're known as uh, the, mm. where the building is traditionally. Women's clothing was the big business mm -hmm. in our four decades. Okay. Yeah, so ladies' mile is, is you know, 5th and 6th and Avenue between okay. 14th and 23rd. So there we are. Things are going good. Everything's nice in our building, and it's a good year. But suddenly, 1910, Rich, mm -hmm. tragedy strikes. And a man named Edward Cap on the 10th floor, which happens to be our floor, who is a skirt manufacturer without okay. known troubles, went into the bathroom and uh, shot himself and died. What? That is what happened. Our floor? On our floor. Whoa. I know. Which is a good reminder that, I mean, come on, don't kill yourself over your skirt manufacturing. Well, you don't or know your what product that... studio. Fair. We don't know what else. What's his name again? Edward Cap. We don't know what else Ed had. I don't know if they called him Ed. Uh, you know, honestly, we do. We when you look at the story, he has a 15 year old son, okay. and was just nobody. Nobody. I mean, who knows what else was going on in the guy's life? We don't. Well, we... that's tragic. It is tragic. And a little haunting. It is, especially because, I mean, you look at our industry today. This is still a problem. You were, you and I were talking about, you know, teenagers in around Palo Alto 
who are killing themselves because mm-hmm. they don't feel that mm-hmm. they're they're hitting the mark. And there's all stories. There's tons of stories. Tons about, of pressure about depression, succeeding and and depression, and that yeah, it's, it's it's complicated. It is very complicated. It is very ongoing. And I, I think it's very interesting to read about someone who committed suicide in the very space where we're now working and realize that. You know, and it sounds ridiculous, but that the problems and stresses of life, because when you look, it's like, well, it was, what, what was he doing? He was a skirt manufacturer. What's, you know, we're saying like, what's the big deal? Yeah, yeah. Maybe he had his stuff, but like with the perspective, you're like, why would you do that, buddy? You were, you could have lived through the Great Depression, maybe. I mean, it's, you know, there's, yeah. there's this weird ability to, to look back and be like, what was he, what was he worried about? Right. And he was obviously worried about very, very real stuff, right? You don't go kill yourself in the bathroom of 101 Fifth Avenue. Well, first off, New York comes to mind. And the competitiveness and just the crushing gears of New York City comes to mind. This is City the thing, like, the, guy, the guy's got to manufacture his skirts, right? Yeah, and there's a guy across the street who's gunning for him, and right? He's and he's just and, decided, probably a bad choice of words right there, Rich. Yeah, but not guy, the right word. Yes. But he's... He's in a very competitive industry at a very com- at a competitive time. Yeah. Well, there's that, but also we don't know all the facts, and it's worth noting that this guy may have been incredibly successful, and everything maybe have been, you know, the facts, the surrounding facts, maybe you know, pieced together a very beautiful life, but he could have been mentally ill. We don't know any. So his city distributor, who had an office on the same floor, said that he was out at one fifteen. Mr. Cap called and requested the office boy to give him the key to the lavatory, and it was handed to him. And two minutes later, the report of a revolver shot was was heard. So um, happy home with his wife and fifteen year old son, and he had a sum of sixty four dollars in his pocket. So that is nineteen ten. Very sad. It is very sad. So we have that. We we have a reminder in our in our world that. Mental health matters. That's sort of how I saw it. You got You have to imagine also the 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 profile of mental health today is very different than 1910. It was probably for men, especially probably pretty taboo to bring up a lot. I, I don't know what the state of things I mean, were, but I can imagine you even go talk to who would you even go talk to? Yeah, I mean, your rabbi, and, and I guess, your minister, your, minister, your rabbi. Uh, yeah, there was maybe real... you had a you know very close friend. Many just even that was considered you know, unmanly to, to bring up or who knows, right? I mean, it probably was a tougher environment to have that kind of struggle. So I'm just mindful of that. Like there's a there's a story there in our space that I see as both cautionary tale and, and something to be aware of. Like just to me, I just see that as like, all right, this matters. Like you have to think about people's basic mental state and how they're seeing success. Yeah. Um, you have it, say, you don't, I don't, I think you see it differently than I do. I get very like, oh my God, this isn't working. Everything's going bad. And I think you have a more of like, we're going to do the best we can and get through and go home. Yeah, I find comfort in plan. Yeah. That's kind of just me. I just, rather than sort of stare at my sho- you know, at my shoes and, and wonder what's going to happen. You just go make a plan. It might not work, but at least my brain is preoccupied with the plan. That's sort of how I deal. But this isn't about me. This is about 101 Fifth. It is about 101 Fifth Avenue. So, yes. We're kind of back to basics here, All right. and it's suddenly it's May twelfth, nineteen twenty-six. You ready? Uh oh, this is moments before the Great Depression, before the stock market crash. Break eighteen-inch wall and get forty thousand dollars silks. Thieves first force door of Fifth Avenue building. Armed men loot theater safe of one thousand dollars. 
A band of robbers forced the street door of the building at 101 <laughs> Fifth Avenue early Sunday morning, made their way to the ninth floor where they broke through an 18-inch wall and looted the Eigenfeld Neckwear Company of silks valued at more than $40,000. They didn't So just, wait, they took the silks? They took the silks. That's amazing. $40,000 in silks, man. Yeah. So that is uh, that is basic. You have to I, I just imagine New York having this sort of refined part of town and then there's this really rugged part of town. Well, this is like and a, then they cross over every so often and commit crime. The, and, the thing that's going on in Fifth Avenue, too, is these floors are distribution, but they're not manufacturing. Mm, I don't storage. Think, I don't see anything, as I've looked through all these articles, I don't see anything that yeah, indicates that this was like a, uh, that these were sweatshops. Like a Got lot it. of spaces in New York City, if you have offices downtown, or also lots of Brooklyn, so lots of those spaces were sweatshops. Yeah. Garment District, too. Yep. This was much more, uh, you, you came and you met with the neckwear distributor, and he might have a couple thousand Whatever. pieces of neckwear. Yep. Got it. But you weren't, they weren't being made there. So this is definitely a, you know, this is a targeted crime mm-hmm. going, going. High value items. High value items, not just scattered everywhere, probably in boxes ready to be taken mm-hmm. down the elevator and walked out the door. So that's 1926. So we're very, we're very garment focused. Then, Rich, what happens is you start to see the building shows up every couple of years. It shows up a couple different ways. First of all, it shows up in real estate transactions because someone's always moving in, moving out, getting a couple of floors. The building gets bought and sold. Mm. You know, and there's just a and those get announced. Those get I announced. Guess. That's news. And actually, what's important to remember is that at that point, the New York Times is canonical for that business, mm. right? Like New York Times like, real estate. Yeah, real estate, and it's this very like functional real estate section. It's sure. not like today you pick up the New York Times real estate, and it's like a twenty-three-year-old woman just bought a twelve-million-dollar apartment yeah, with her. You know, and she likes yeah. to she does things with shoes and, and weaving, and you're yeah. like, how, how did that happen? Right. You know, and her brother lives with her, and you're just like, yeah. I don't, I don't. This why they're more profiles. Yeah. This is like you know the the United Consolidated Siemens Insurance Company right. just moved into yeah. uh, a building, and you know the the previous tenant was uh, the ASPCA and they're moving, you know, north. Right. So a lot of business records, a lot of leases. And then as time goes on, you also see the building show up quite a bit in obituaries because the guy who, as, as time goes on, as we get in the 30s and 40s, the garment distributors who worked there start dying. Mm. So like, you know, this guy from the Taiyo you know, Japanese import company dies in, in the 20s. Mm-hmm. It's now a little world unto itself. Like it's right. just one of these tiny nodes of millions and millions of similar nodes in New York City where sure. people are setting up businesses where they think they can make a profit. They're coming and going from their houses mm-hmm. and they're living their lives. Sometimes they're ending them literally. Sometimes they're uh, working there for 20, 30 years and, and going away. And so that to me is always the interesting moment. And one of the things I love about New York City is that you start to see those patterns emerge over sure. time. Like 101 Fifth is almost definitely going to be a microcosm of a swath of American culture just by being in that parcel of land. Well, it speaks to, to me, it speaks to the fluidity of New York City, right? Like if you did this against a building in a small town in Pennsylvania, it's just, you know, two partners owned a diner, 73 years. There's just not a lot of change. No, you don't uh, have the turnover. You don't have the turnover. And and that is New York City, right? Like New York City 
that is that that treadmill is on twelve, and it's just going to stay on that. And, and and we're we're no different, right? We're brand new. Well, I think that's the thing. Like we're going to get to us. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. So as we're as we're going through here, you start to see the national in the forties. The National Cancer Foundation moves in. Okay. So now we're getting away from garments. Yeah. And also college textbook publishers start showing up. Hmm. And then what you also see is the obituaries start changing, like an, an editor dies. And yeah. it's like, oh, he was at Henry Holter or at um, Janie's T. White and Company. Right. Different at, industries are passing through the Yeah, property. like the people who published the National Cyclopedia of American Biography were right. in the building. One of the originating uh, companies that later became for, um, for our Strauss-Guru, which is one of the big, uh, which is one of the big, literary publishers still around today. So mm. the the paths, these companies actually still exist in various forms. They've been merged and consolidated, but they passed through. Yeah. So it was garments, and then it became kind of information age. Suddenly books. World University Press was in there, and they would publish books like Ownership and Control in Modern Industrial Society. That's in 1950. Okay. Right? So suddenly the information age is landing. It gets The building gets sold again in, in 1949. And yeah. So... For one thing, one thing I've realized since living here is that the one true industry of New York City is real estate. Like the, sure. the building and the parcel changing hands is the actual true like native expression of New York City. Yeah. Everything else we're kind of leasing. Right? Yeah. Like, literally leasing. Yeah. But they've made this space for us. And if you can afford to pay the tax, you can participate in the culture of the city. Right. And then it really is an empire. Like, I mean, yeah. It's like sort of eye-rolly word, but there, there are empires of real estate here that are always kind of like trying to get a little bit of edge. Oh, yeah. One of the things we heard, you know, we are a young company, right? And when we were negotiating with the landlord, they were pretty anxious about us, but really wanted us. And the reason they were anxious about us is because we're so young. So we don't have a long credit history, right? Obviously, we're only less than a year old. But they really wanted us because they wanted to be perceived as a building that had, you know, sort of forward-looking tech, internet shops inside of it. And because he knew that 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 would be a selling point for other other floors in the building. When they were leasing some other floor, they say, oh, these guys are here... There are a few other internet companies that are in the building. That's right. Um, and so even the the landlord is actually quite sensitive to the perception that he wants to create as he continues to market the building. He doesn't really care. Uh, he's not a fan of us or the internet, probably. I met the guy. Uh, my guess is, you know... Well, no, we represent... He's thinking about his business, right? He's thinking about the profile of the property. What story can he tell to someone else who wants Correct. to come in and... and- and frankly, as we shopped, it was a meaningful consideration for us. We actually turned down addresses that we thought were going to we were going to be less impressive representations of us. This uh, brings perfectly out good places, by the way. Very nice spaces, blocks good, away. Not good, not good work could be done. Absolutely. But the signifier of a place with an address like 101 Fifth Avenue and a certain look and feel to the office. Yep. It's a very modern, neutral space. Lots of mm-hmm. exposed brick. Should be a nice place to work. There's certain things that you get with that kind of space. And, that, I mean, and you, that, you grew up here. I've been here over 20 years. And it really, you, you become sensitive to things like that in a way that you never thought was possible or that you'd want to be sensitive. Yeah. But the, reali- right. the reality is that a lot of the conversation that I need to have to tell people about what we do, the building can start that conversation for me. Mm-hmm. 
And when people come in and they see where we are and what we're doing, it's an impression. It indicates that we're, you know, in a way that like I can still wear, you know, old sneakers and they can come in and see that building and they can go like, okay. Yeah, that's right. And also it's worth noting what business we're in. We are not a head down product shop that needs to hide for two years as we build something. We host and greet a lot of people. We're a services business. So it's meaningful for us to, to have an impressive place to host you. Speaking of that, what happens through the 50s and 60s is there is a recurring feature, and we show up in it almost every week, called reports of arrival of buyers. Okay. And what would happen is people would come in to buy... The building. No. The stuff, like the garment stuff was still there. Oh. So let me pop one up. So... I don't know what this means. So there's this recurring feature called reports of arrival of buyers, and it tells you that classified by office. So like Shirley's from Blandensburg, Maryland would be at the Ace Buying Corps, 505 8th Avenue. Alice K's shop from Bethlehem, PA would show up at Hertenstein and Cohen, 225 West 34th. And M. Baum would be there buying dresses. So I think you'd come to the city, you'd come to 101 Fifth Avenue and you'd have a little office inside of maybe another garment related thing where there was a mm-hmm. bunch of offices where... You could go in there and you could probably rent the office and people could come and bring you the dresses mm. that you were going to buy and take back to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So yeah. that's... That's not that unusual, actually. No, um, but it's, yeah. we were definitely like, we were showroom. Yeah. We were showroom. You would come and you yeah. would... Um, and you said, I need 500 of these or... I, I mean, you could be, you yeah, know, the nice. representative of, a, you know, a department store in Cincinnati. You're still coming to New York because, it, you know, a lot of goods emanate out of New York, right? Especially in the world of fashion. That's right. Right? It was for, I mean, it was defining, right? So there's a few things going. You'd get on the train and you'd like go to New York City and you'd go to an office yep. and then the New York, you'd let the New York Times know uh-huh. that you were going to be around and that they should, somebody should come by and show you some dresses. Yeah. The reality is that the internet has just completely absorbed that role in society. Like, mm, I don't know if entire, I mean, I think... You know, There's, if you're a buyer, you know the term a buyer? Sure. Like, I'm a buyer for Macy's. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that world looks like for that person today versus how it used to look. I guess you still have to go. It feels like everything's gotten bigger and weirder. Like, you might be going to Shenzhen to the factories where they're sourcing it. and Probably not Macy's, but Macy's is definitely sitting down somewhere where, you know, Nautica and... Ralph Lauren, or whoever, like especially the upstart brands that are trying to get some space inside of a Macy's, there's probably a dynamic at play where that buyer lets it be known that they're going to give an opportunity. Can you know, uh, large conventions do this, right? I mean, they have like they all gather. That's like you know, in any industry, whether it be food or fashion or whatever, a convention is a great place for all the different right. sides of the businesses to sort of converge and you know and show off. You know, the, the sellers will show off with this new product and the buyers will walk around and, and get to know each other. And, and then... Look, here's what we know. Here's what we... I actually, like being an outsider, by the way, not knowing a damn thing about the fashion world. But here's what I know. Here's yeah. what I know. First of all, a friendly, helpful voice has just told us that there are thousands of showrooms still operating in the fashion district. So yeah. this could be happening now. Yeah. Okay. But here's what's actually interesting to me, that you don't really open up the New York Times and read the reports of arrival of buyers anymore. 
No. So the information's getting out no. somewhere. The pa- yeah, the, the pa- channels of to communicate that is just you don't need the newspaper. The paper, to do that. the paper no longer has that role. Correct. And it actually this this role seems to have gone away. You know, almost before. I don't remember this in the Times. From, no. You know, like it, yeah. it might have been part of the classified or something. Right. But so what you see is that kind of going on. Suddenly we appear, our office appears, and that goes up until the up until the 60s, and then it changes its name, Arrival of Buyers in New York Area, Arrival of Out-of-Town Buyers. Another book publisher dies in the 60s and gets an obituary. He was at Frederick Warner Company on 101 Fifth Avenue. That is what this building starts to mean to, yep. to the world. It means I can go there and uh, sell my dresses yep. that I make still in mm-hmm. New York City, still a garment capital of the world yep. in the 60s. I'll, I'll share, actually, a connected fact here. I'm not going to reveal who our landlord is, but before he was a landlord or his group was a landlord... He was responsible and I guess owned a particular uh, high-end like couture line of clothing. Sure. And then he stepped out of that business and got into real estate. So it's probably because he knew where he was at and exactly, you know, how the real estate played in that world really well. So he did, he actually doesn't come from real estate, which is interesting. Interesting. Our current owner. So all these worlds are colliding and then around the 70s, Uh-oh. it all trails off. Hmm. There's no more news about us. And I mean, what I was able to find is, you know, a little mention of an advertising uh, agency. Things are coming in and out of the building. And slowly, yeah. the world of the world of book publishing, there's still quite a bit around the neighborhood, but a lot of it migrated uptown. Mm-hmm. Fashion's still around there, but it's, it's sort of wedged in. Mm-hmm. We have a, a dermatologist on the top floor, mm-hmm. and, so, and who is apparently very popular right before Fashion Week. Everybody goes and gets today just, yeah we have a dermatologist in yeah, the building so there's still a, a strong oh, this is like a high-end like i think the kardashians go yeah, to celebrities go up the freight elevator woman or whoever to, it is to see this woman yes really and i um, might go do this you know yeah me too i've got like a chin thing no i just i just i have a lot of just things okay yeah let me so, see we get a discount i mean we're in the building yeah um and so what you see is that then it just kind of like the little signals I was able to get, it seems like it just starts to grab the wave of whatever's, whatever's happening in New York City at that moment. Yeah. And so, but there's ultimately a big gap in my understanding of our building between mm. the 70s and now. Mm. So ad agencies, publishing, media, fashion, those are the things that are coming in and out. But now if you look at it, there's about four internet companies in the building. Including us. That's including right. Including us. There's yep. uh, Luma Partners who do the um, those those charts with all the different, like the Luma advertising landscape. Mm-hmm. It's worth looking at if you've never seen it. It'll just show you how crazy the world of advertising is. There is, um, I think, SoundCloud's in there. SoundCloud is in the building. That's and correct. AdRoll. AdRoll's in there as well. And an aesthetician slash dermatologist on the yep. top floor. So, Which is not, no coincidence. There's no doubt that the landlord sort of sought out this profile that he wants to have for that building. There's a story. Yeah. There's a story he's right. telling. We're part of that. And so, you know what it made me think is, like, post I probably won't be there 20 years from now. Well, we'll be selling silk. We'll be selling silk. No, but I mean... It's going to come full circle. It made me think, right, because everything when is in there, when you're in that building now and you yeah. look up and down the... The roster of companies, you're like, oh, okay. But any one of them could go on any day and either get bigger yeah. or get smaller. Yeah. Right. And culture is going to change. Like the the publishing companies get bought. 
the fashion comes and goes. Mm-hmm. The buyers no longer need to physically come to Fifth Avenue to that building. They go somewhere else or yep. they make, I don't know. I don't know what they do. So it made me wonder, like, right now that landlord wants to get cool internet businesses yep. in there that people go, oh, this is an up-and-coming neighborhood. I will, I will pay a premium because this, when somebody walks in, they're going to see people who are, you know, like, engaged in the modern economy. Yep. And, you know, right, right looking feel. <laughs> right. Okay, good. I'm glad to, glad to be part of that. It's good for our business. What's that look like 20 years from now? Because they're going to want the same thing. Um, that's a great question. I have no idea. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing, yeah. like, I'm not putting you on the spot. Like, I, I truly have no idea. Like, would it be, like, apps? It won't be, right? It like, won't be apps. It won't. No. 20 years from now, you're not looking at mobile phones being what they are. No. And this is in 30, 40, 50. I mean, this building's still going to be there. Yeah. Right, fifty years from now, you and I could end up being one of those obituaries where it's just like Paul Ford of one, who who well, had that's offices depressing. at one. Just well, take good care of yourself, and if, we won't have to read that. Eventually, we're going to die unless the singularity gets here sooner than we thought. I think that might be the the tenants in the building will just be dealing with the singularity. That's that might be the, the building new, itself, the new genre of tenant. At one like hyper, well, it'll be like singularity subscriptions and singularity documents. So and, the entire building will just become a hyper intelligent consciousness, you know, intertwined. With servicing one. different parts of the consciousness sure. is my thinking. So there'll be like a like a cyber fashion buyer will come by. Yeah. And be like, I need to buy yeah. five or six trillion abstract. Like addressing per your your sort of your taste. Yeah, that's right. As part of the singularity you know, or your mood. Arbitrary abstractions that in colors and lights that please yeah. the global throbbing Uber brain that controls our exactly, world. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good something one. like that. Right? I mean, that is the singularity is gonna be hell on real estate. It's gonna be rough on when real estate. When all consciousness merges into one giant computational substrate. How do you price that per square foot? You really it's a brute <laughs> of a problem. Yeah. yeah. Right? So like, and it's not it's never not gonna be like, oh hey, we'll we'll build you an app. It'll be something very, very different. Right. Also, I don't think the singularity as a single conscious entity is gonna be really concerned about location, location, location. Uh no. No, I mean, I think no. really what's going to be, what is real estate? I think you still have to service the singularity. Mm, yeah, but it doesn't need a building like that. What it needs is to be close to the internet. Like it needs to be, like Google headquarters will be a great place. Yeah. Because you want that sub light speed connection to all the other yeah. entities that are out there probing. Yeah. So I think that that's pretty much the the end game on this building. It could become like a Dave and Buster's or it could maybe go towards it. Like maybe Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde, or, yeah. or what's the shrimp one? Bubba uh, shrimp, bub, bubba gum shrimp. I mean, Times Square could just keep going. So that would make that. sense, actually. Times Square. I don't know why it stops where it stops. Ah, thank God it stops no, where it stops. No, I think it should just take <laughs> just over. Just keep going. One day, this the virus, <laughs> whatever barrier is stopping the okay. Times Square virus. <laughs> So, Rich, that is the story well, of our we, building. We welcome your predictions as to what our building becomes at contact at postlight.com. Yeah, I mean, we're just, we are literally just tenants there. We're a moment in time. We are a moment in time, but we're going to make yeah. the most of the moment in time. Yeah. Paul, this was fascinating. Really interesting. I sort of put things it. in perspective. I mean, we're just, we're going to do the best we can with the space we have. Yep. Exactly. So this has been Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a product design studio in New York City at 101 Fifth Avenue, 10th floor. <laughs> uh, my name is Paul Ford. I'm a co-founder. Rich Ziotti. And Rich is also a co-founder, in case you couldn't tell. And I am, uh, all of us are available at contact at postlight.com. 
We are glad to hear any of your questions, your feedback, your concern, your criticisms, and uh, we look forward to it. Also, go ahead on iTunes. Give us a good rating if you're in the mood. But if yeah. you're not in the mood, look, just live your life. We're happy. Well, to close the phone. Go yeah. out. Just close take a walk. Live a life. If you're not live in the mood. Live a good life. We, we're, yeah. Whatever it takes for you to be happy is yeah. what we want you to do. Exactly. Uh, all right, Rich. Let's get back to work. Okay. All Bye, right. Paul. Bye.